everybody, I'm Father Roderick, and you are listening to The Break. And this is your weekly break where we talk about a lot of things. Today, I'm going to talk about the finale of She-Hulk, spoiler-free, so don't worry if you haven't seen it yet. We'll talk about uh, what She-Hulk can mean for Bible readers, and maybe also for Bible thumbers, and way more than that, of course, as I do every week. This show is brought to you thanks to my patrons over at patreon.com slash fatherroderick. I'm so grateful for their help, for their support, and also for their input because patrons play a pivotal role in helping me to make the right choices. And especially these past few weeks, we've gone through a lot of changes or not really changes, but I've started to curate more what I do. Um, I talked about energy leaks in in my other episodes uh, that I published previously. So go listen to those if you haven't done so already. And it's, and so uh, literally, literal energy leaks, because the winter is coming. Winter is coming. But <laughs> so I'm trying to stop the energy leaks in my house because the prices are so high. So I'm trying to minimize my energy use, also trying to minimize the, the heat that is leaking from this old building because it's very badly I- insulated. But then I kind of continued this process by also trying to stop some energy leaks in my own uh, personal life and in my professional life. Like, where is my energy going? You can only do so many things. So it's it's up to me to make the right choices. Where do I invest my energy? And that has led me with a lot of uh, discernment that came from my community and from my patrons to stop doing a couple of things so I can do the things that I really want to do and that you want me to do, that I can do those better. So I've been purging a number of my channels, uh, a lot of my social media stuff that nobody really followed anyway. Um, and I'm currently in the process of, of condensing stuff on YouTube because I had a lot of YouTube channels. But I'm slowly bringing that together. I do the same with my uh, with my live streams. I'm try I try to be very efficient uh, in the sense that I'm doing one live stream, but then I can use um, Streamyard, which is software that I often use for live streams, and I can just show it to Twitter, show it to Facebook, show it to YouTube, and it's all automatic. So it's really easy to set up. Doesn't cost me much much energy. I can see all the comments, and doesn't really matter where people post a comment. It all goes into one funnel in a certain way. Simple, small things, but they're such a great way for me to to save my energy. Now, one important thing that I want to do this, this is kind of like a public announcement here. Uh, but of course, if you follow me on other platforms like social media or on Patreon, you already know this. But since the beginning of COVID and basically the lockdowns, when that started, I was like, okay, I need to do something because so many people would like to go to church, but it's just dangerous. And, and uh, in, in many places, it was even forbidden to go to church. We here in the Netherlands, for instance, were asked by our bishop to, um, to stream our masses as much as possible. A lot of churches back then didn't even know how to do that. They had never thought about using digital media to reach out to their parishioners. But now they had to because there was no other way to reach out. And so that's what a lot of churches did. And I started doing that as well. Um, I was back then in a different parish. So we set up a whole system with like multiple cameras. I had a ton of people helping me. And so we've been doing that all along for, for more than, well, yeah, more than two years. It already two years ago that I started that. And then, of course, I, I, I moved into this parish. Uh, there was a lot of change happening. Um, but also the world around me changed. Of course, the 
COVID is still with us, and uh, a number of my friends are currently even suffering still from from uh, COVID infection. And, and um, maybe if you're listening to this and you too have COVID, I hope you all recover. But it's much less dangerous than it used to be. It can still be risky, but we now have uh, a vaccine, a vaccination. Um, the, the COVID variants that are currently doing the rounds are much less aggressive than the ones that we had in the beginning. And so more and more uh, people have started to go back to their local communities, which is, of course, awesome. You want to... The, the best way, I think, to... To, to celebrate Mass and to celebrate any liturgies, to be together as well, and to be there in real life. Um, and I was at the same time was noticing that it, w- that it started to cost me, really, because from a situation where I had uh, multiple people helping me to do this every week, I had to do it all by myself. Um, and I was, if you've ever seen one of those streams, I was just basically celebrating Mass in, in what was my, bed, my bedroom. <laughs> and I just had one camera on a tripod, and uh, but I knew that some people really needed this because they had no alternative. But having to do that all by myself, in addition to um, the work that I do here in the parishes, because I I'm I'm assisting in Father Henry's parish locations every week, uh, it really started to weigh, and especially sometimes uh, when. Father Henry, for instance, fell ill. He had COVID himself just two weeks ago. Um, I needed to take over all his masses. And I, and then in addition to that, I had to do the live stream. And it was just, it was too much. And I was, uh, I was getting so exhausted. Exhausted also because the, the, the kind of homilies that I would do in the parish were very different from the ones that I did online because I'm talking to a different audience. So um, basically, uh I, I realized that I couldn't keep this up and I had to somehow stop this energy leak because I needed my energy for other stuff. So I talked about it with the, with the community uh, on Discord, also on Patreon. Got a lot of really good and encouraging feedback. And, and the, the majority of the people told me, it's fine. You know, it's, it, it was super useful. It has been a huge help for me during covid but we go back to our churches. There are alternatives online. So maybe think about an alternative way to, to talk about the Bible readings of the weekend. But you don't have to add that, you know, keep doing this, this extra mass. And I've already been able to, to see that from the numbers. Um, we went from hundreds of people watching this live to only sometimes just five people. The other, the, just this last Sunday... Um, I, w- I was streaming mass, and there were three people there. And you know what? If that is, if this would be a real parish location, we would have probably went, gone to those three people and say, "Hey, why don't you join us in one of our other masses?" Because <laughs> this is a little bit too much effort for just a, a tiny little group. Now, everybody, of course, is important, but sometimes you have to look at the bigger picture and see. Well, that energy can also be put in in. Uh, can also serve a bigger community. So that's what we decided. And I say we decided. Uh, I really believe the patrons, and those are the ones that are carrying my ministry, um, and, and, and me, and maybe also the Holy Spirit, because I prayed about this. Uh, we decided that it's, it's time now to let it go. And so this is going to be the first weekend since we started all those years ago. Now, that's not true. There were moments where I was, for instance, moving, and I... I just couldn't do the stream or when I was Ill myself or on, on vacation. 
But this is the first time uh, that we're just going to put the, the, the streaming mass on hiatus, knowing very well that in case, and may God prevent this from happening, but if there ever is going to be another big global lockdown, of course I'm here to serve. I'm, I will be there for you. But right now, uh, we're going to close that down. And, and that it's just a, small things. But it's it's such a relief for me, and it really helps me to kind of focus on, for instance, on this, on just bringing you these podcasts. So I hope, in case you hadn't heard this already, I hope this this uh, this um, uh, gives a little bit of background as to why I started to uh, to spend um, these these online masses, and of course I keep thinking about other ways to to feed you because that's what it's all about. I want to be there for you. Um, but I also have to be there for me, or at least I <laughs> need to prevent myself from getting overworked. So thank you for your uh, for your understanding. Let's take a look at the news. Do you know what's going on? This is what's happening in your world. They said Catholics rule. We got Boston, South America, the good part of Ireland, and we're making serious inroads in Mozambique, baby. You've taken your first step into a larger world. All right, let's start with a community news update. We've got some new patrons that I want to welcome to the club. And we have Galaxy Lord 1954EX. Welcome. I'm so glad that you decided to become a patron. Can't wait to get to know you a little bit better. Of course, we have got a Discord server for our patrons where you can introduce yourself. And then we've got Aaron as well, who also joined the community of patrons. Welcome. I hope you're going to have a great time not just with me but also with the rest of the community and then we also have brian who upped his monthly donation um so thank you so much uh, several of you have been doing that over the past few weeks i really appreciate it as you know we can we can really use every penny right now we're still not um uh self-sufficient financially <laughs> because i I don't work for television anymore. Um, and, and a lot of that income was carrying basically the, the online work. Um, but uh, thanks. So thanks to my existing patrons who have, uh, and of course, I want you to be responsible with your money and only give more if you are able to. Uh, but if there are other priorities in your life, never feel guilty about that. Uh, you make the decision and I'll just blame God, right? <laughs> providence god should take care of his own if he wants this work then yeah <laughs> he will inspire people to to support but anyway thanks so much for for all your support then i've got another update um this is more personal thing i bought books now this may seem a bit trivial right yeah so you bought a book big deal <laughs> no i bought a real paper book and not just one about five or six and that, that's kind of new to my life because I've gotten rid of like 95% of all my books in the past. So why did I buy book books? Um, it's because I, uh, I discovered a few uh, gift cards. So in the Netherlands, I don't know if this exists elsewhere, we, we have the, like the classic present that you give someone for a birthday party, for instance, um, and you don't know what to give, or you just don't want to bother thinking about something personal, you give people a gift card, but it's usually for books. It's only recently that that, there, that that we got a whole slew of other type of gift cards, so now you can even do like a Netflix or a Disney Plus gift card, which is kind of cool because you give people basically a month of entertainment. Uh, so that's a lot of hours that you facilitate. Um, but... 
but it all started with these book gift cards. The thing was, you could only buy books. You could only spend this money in a bookstore. So it got even worse in this case because these gift cards that I found were actually meant for this one bookstore in Hilversum. So I got these these gift cards. Um, so at the end of the year, usually around Christmas, the broadcasting company that I worked for, um, they did this Christmas gathering and then they would hand us this gift card as a Christmas present. However, it was this one single bookstore where you could spend it in Hilfersum, which is pretty far away uh, for me at least right now. And then um, the other thing was they were only valid for one year. So I was I was cleaning up my house and I was like, oh, I've got these gift cards. Wait a minute, I gotta go all the way to Hilversum. When, when do I go there? I don't really do t TV anymore, at least not right now. Maybe that will change, but right now I don't have this, you know, reason to go to Hilversum. Plus, I looked at the back of the card and it said it's only valid um, until the first of Jan no, the like the thirty first of December, two thousand twenty one, but then. That was still in the middle of COVID. Like these stores were closed. So I, I, this past, uh, when was it Thursday? Yeah, Thursday. I, I had an appointment in Hilversum to talk a little bit about, you know, give people there an update. How was I, what I was doing, what they were working on. See if maybe there are, there is future collaboration that is possible. Um, so that was very interesting. Hopefully that, that will lead to uh, maybe some, some new stuff that I can do on TV. Uh, but then I was in Hilversum, so I took the, the card, I went to the store, and I, I, I told them my conundrum. I said, I had these gift cards, but I couldn't spend it because it was COVID. You guys were closed down, and I don't come here that often anymore. And they told me, oh, sure, no worries, you can spend it, just go and shop around. And then, so then I, this was a very big bookstore, kind of a big like a smaller Barnes & Noble, if you're from the U.S., um, so it's 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 very nice that it's, I, I like these bookstores because it's um, it's not just about books it's also about the atmosphere they they sell a lot of other stuff as well but then then for me the big problem was so what am I going to buy because I have I read mostly either on my Kindle or I listen to audiobooks what makes me want to buy a book book it needs to be something that I that is not available in a, in an ebook form and maybe the form of the book has added value like sometimes i love the coffee table books like the you've got these beautiful like i've got this huge book weighs a ton and it, it's got all these pictures of of behind the scenes when they were filming a new hope and it's like an entire history of how that film came about that of course is a book i'm not going to do away with and and that would be really hard to read on a tiny kindle screen or even on an ipad screen so for those books it's has added value um what are other books of oh, sometimes you have books with lots of illustrations where the illustrations are really uh important and i i, I tend to not like to see illustrations on a black and white kindle because it's again it's very small it makes the book very slow to to read so so for books with lots of illustrations I usually get a book book. Or you will have books that have just been published. And sometimes they're just Dutch books that are not available in other languages, let alone available uh, on, on, on the Kindle store. So to give you a summary of this very, very long intro, 
it took me four hours. I spent four hours in that bookstore to finally make make a decision. And then, of course, I had to calculate the price. Am I am I reaching the, what was it in total? Like I had one gift card for 40 bucks and another one for 35. So the total amount should be around 75. I went over, of course, because books. And I ended up buying the most eclectic collection of books. The first one was very cool, just came out. It was even... It was so new that I even didn't have it in their computers yet. So that took about 15 minutes for them to enter it into the system, much to the chagrin of the other people that were waiting to get served. It's written by Jans Anderson, and it's called Lego, the story of the toy of the century. Um, This is a Dutch version of the book. The name of the author kind of makes me think that it's probably also a Danish um, uh, author. So this may be, may be a translation. I haven't been able to find this in an English version yet. But it's basically it's a thick book. It's like 500 pages. Lots of illustrations um, of the history of Lego. And how that family, because it's a family business, how that evolved over time. And, um, and I, I'm a huge Lego fan. So I was like, yeah. And, and it's got all these black and white photos. I've never seen a book like this. So, yeah, I definitely want to read that. Then I bought the Dutch translation of the Silmarillion. Beautifully bound book. Lots of illu- At least, I'm not sure if there are illustrations on the inside. But definitely, it's got all the maps and stuff and the, the indexes that Tolkien wrote. Um, and so, it's the Silmarillion in Dutch. I've, I've tried to read the Silmarillion never really made it to not even half the book then i tried to listen to the audiobook version which was very helpful because it's beautifully narrated but it's still in english you've got all these names and you don't have the tables and the maps and stuff and so i saw this one i was like okay this is in dutch so it's it's easier for me to read and it's it's really one of those books that you just want to have on your bookshelves. So whenever you're watching Rings of Power and they are referencing stuff that happened in the second or the first age, I can just pick up my Dutch copy and look it up. So I, I'm so happy to finally have the, the Dutch translation of the Silmarillion. The, the, the next book that I bought is also um, focusing on Tolkien, but this was written by, I think, a Belgian author. And also, this book had just come out, I think. Uh, so it's brand new. It's written by Johan van Hecke. And it's called In, in the... Um, How do you say that? In the, in the Grip of Hobbits and Elves. So the Lord of the Rings in Dutch is... The title of the Lord of the Rings is, in translation, um, In the Grip of the, of the Ring. Uh, which is kind of already kind of spoiling what the story is going to be about. Um, and so they use that title to like a play on that title. And so this is a, a huge fan of um, uh, of Tolkien, someone really a scholar. Um, and he wrote about his own passion for uh, for Tolkien's work. And it's not just about Tolkien and about his books, but it's also about the whole like cultural impact of the Lord of the Rings and of the works of, of Tolkien on society, on art, on entertainment. Um, so I'm really looking forward to reading that. Then I bought a very simple Japanese cookbook. Now, I already have a ton of cookbooks. And I have to be honest, I barely ever look at them. 
because it's always a lot of text and you have to like look at it. It's just a hassle. I just rather watch a one minute TikTok video and try to replicate that. But for this, I made an exemption because this is a Japanese cookbook. And what I love about it, it only uses between three and five ingredients. And it, on the left side of the page, you have a photo of the dish. And on the right side of the page, it's just these very simple steps. Do this, add this, uh, cook it that way. And then boom, you have what's on the left page. Ideally, of course. And I love that because I, I was, I, I just, it was cheap, like 7.50, 7 euros, 50 cents. Um, but there are a lot of dishes there that I've already seen on TikTok. And I'm just going to work my way through the entire book. I want to make every single recipe. And it's written in Dutch. So it also is done with ingredients uh, and measurements that work for me as a Dutch amateur cook. So uh, again, oftentimes uh, what frustrates me is I, I see this TikTok video and then I look up how to make it. And it's all stuff that I, you cannot buy in the Netherlands. And it's got all these measurements with cups and ounces and stuff. And I have to do all the, the calculation. What is that in a metric system? Um, and so this book makes it my life a little bit easy, easier, I should say. And then the final book is um, an autobiography of David Attenborough. It's called Life on Air. Um, it's a Sunday Times bestseller. I think this is the Dutch version. I'm not even sure. Is this Dutch or is it? I don't even, I didn't even notice when I bought it. But I'm fascinated by the, the media career of, of David Attenborough. And it's a book full of stories and anecdotes. And I just, I want to know more about this guy. I love reading biographies and autobiographies, and especially someone as iconic as David Attenborough. Yeah, definitely had to check that out. So, so that was basically my news. I bought a couple of book books, and I haven't seen any of these in ebook form. Maybe I'm, I'm wrong, because I was, like, there was spotty internet in the bookstore, so I tried to look it up. I was actually, I was going to buy a lot of fantasy books, but then I figured, yeah, those are going to be on sale at one point or another on the Kindle bookstore. So, yeah. I did. And, and, and the problem with fantasy books, a lot of them are like six, 700 pages. I saw that, like the Priory of the Orange Something, which is a book that I bought already in ebook form. Now I saw what the paper book looks like. And it's basically like a, a kilogram and a half. It's like a very, very big brick. And then... If you want to get the affordable one, which is the paperback version, of course, that will fall apart after reading six, 700 pages. So, yeah. Um, I'm so happy that I have a lot of those books in ebook form. But I'm also happy that I have got a few of those book books because there is a kind of a special charm to regular paper books. How do you not like movies? They're predictable. Like, the guy gets the girl and that kid sees dead people and Darth Vader is Luke's father. Not liking movies is like not liking puppies. They're fine. I just get bored and never make it to the end. You know, you need a movie education. You need a movication. I'm going to give it to you. All right. So much to talk about when it comes to TV shows. First of all, I'm super excited that I finally have um, access to Crunchyroll. Now, Crunchyroll was totally unknown to me. I'd never heard of Crunchyroll but in my previous parish, there was this one um, youth worker 
And she was very much into anime. Never actually knew that until I bumped into her on a Comic-Con. We've got Dutch Comic-Con. It's coming up in a couple of weeks from now. I've got tickets because, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of all that geeky culture. And so I was there and then I hear my voice. I was like, wait, you are here? What are you doing here? And then she told me, yeah, I'm actually a huge, uh, secretly, I'm, I'm a huge anime fan. So I'm always here. And then she she told me about Crunchyroll, which is the platform because I only was watching the I was I wasn't watching much anime and the few things that I wanted to check out were on Netflix um, and there's a little bit of anime on Amazon Prime as well. She's told me that now Crunchyroll that's the place to be. I think right now Crunchyroll is also um, taken over. It used to be an independent site and and now Sony has bought it. Um, but but Crunchyroll. Um, enables you to watch for free a lim- a, a part of their catalog, not everything. So the, the cool stuff that everybody's watching, you have to pay for that, obviously. And then, of course, if you get the, the free uh, account, you get a lot of ads. And it just drove me insane. I'm so done with advertisements. I know that Netflix has just launched their free, uh, well, not, not even free, You have to, but their cheapest subscription right now is $699 has advertisements and i think it's like four or five ads one minute ads per hour i mean how can you even watch a movie going back to i mean wasn't this why we went to streaming models why we wanted to to uh get subscriptions to all these streaming platforms it's to get rid of the ads and now they're bringing back the ads yeah no i'm i'm done with that i don't want that i don't mind ads but not when I'm trying to spend my precious time that I have for, for, for movies and TV shows watching ads. And, and especially because it's so intrusive and it interrupts. I was, when I was in the US, I was watching, was it Paramount Plus or maybe Hulu? One of these was also the kind of the free subscription that Rob had. And I was watching, um, I don't even know. I don't remember what I was watching. But then every 10 minutes you would get these ads Oh, no, please. I'd rather pay a little bit more or not watching at all. So Crunchyroll also surprised me with all these ads. And it's like, no, I want to get a subscription. However, it's another subscription. And so what I did was I went into my budgeting software and I looked at what can I cut in order to enable a Crunchyroll subscription? This is it's kind of my, my financial minimalism. So, um, and I need to probably explain this to those of you that don't know the, the kind of the principles of minim- minimalism is always like try to focus on what's truly adding value to your life and get rid of, the, of what is no longer providing you with value. And the same, I, I apply the same thing to my, my entertainment stuff. So if I subscribe... To, for instance, um, uh, the Xbox, because I, I love that. I, I'm going to talk about this in the gaming segment as well. But uh, Xbox has a monthly subscription, but that also means that I'm not going to buy new video games. I'm just going to work with what Xbox and the Game Pass offers me. I do that also with, so if one streaming subscription, uh, if I want to add one, where can I downgrade? What what can so for instance Netflix, I'm seriously considering going back from the current. I've got the HD subscription, 
But since they introduced the ads, they've upped the video quality of the lowest subscription without ads from just SD, which is very, very low quality, to 720p, which is half the resolution uh, of HD. And I'm thinking, okay, well, 720p, that's basically if you're watching my live streams, a lot of them are 720p. That's fine. It's not great, especially if you're watching it on a big TV, but it's not as grating as SD, which is, I think, like what used to be DVD quality. So that's definitely below 720p. So it's very blurry. Um, maybe that's how I can save a couple of bucks. And then, of course, I can afford Crunchyroll. But in this case, I was juggling around some other uh, expenses that I had, and, and that that allowed me to free up budget for Crunchyroll. Now I have Crunchyroll, and it's awesome. It's really cool. I can check out a lot of the anime series that uh, my followers on TikTok are talking about. And um, yeah, it's a whole new world. A very strange world. I'm still trying to figure out what is worth my time. But uh, I'll, again, I'll just use the input of my followers. They can tell me what's worth my time and what is not. And sometimes it's not what I expect. Sometimes I'm thinking, like, why would you recommend this series to me? And and I start watching, and I'm like, ah, now I get it. That, yeah, this, def this is definitely a lot better than I thought it would be. So anyway, that's that's the first thing um, that I wanted to talk about. Second thing, the She-Hulk finale. This was interesting. So She-Hulk was a very um, unconventional new show uh, on Disney+. Plus. Um, and it's... It's it's basically the the television version of something of a comic book series um, that was going strong for a lot of years, and um, it introduces us to the cousin basically of of Bruce Banner, and she is an attorney at law, uh, but then she gets superpowers. She she gets a little bit of the of the Hulk's blood in her, and that. So now she's able to transform into the Hulk. But she the, the difference with all the other superheroes is she just wants to continue her work. In fact, she is hired by a superhero law firm. So it's a law firm that does all the superhero cases. And they want her to be actually She-Hulk. But at the same time, to just be a regular attorney. This is very funny. And what made She-Hulk so unique is, well, first of all, funny. It's really a series that doesn't take itself very, very seriously. Um, akin, in a certain way, to Deadpool, although it's very family-friendly compared to, what, <laughs> to, to Deadpool, but it constantly breaks the fourth wall. Now, the fourth wall is a term that comes from te television production. If you've ever watched a sitcom with a live audience, uh, Frasier, um, Friends... Uh, the Big Bang Theory, you name it. Um, those television series or those sitcoms were literally filmed in front of a real audience. So they were looking at the set and the set had only three walls. It's the backdrop and then it's a, a wall on the left and a wall on the, on the, on the right side. I was reading, by the way, a very funny article. I bought the, the Lego set of Seinfeld. And Seinfeld takes place on a, a couple of locations. And, and one of those locations is the apartment uh, of Seinfeld. And then there was this whole thing on Reddit where fans were looking at um, the hallway that you sometimes see where part of the 
action is taking place. And then you've got the apartment, which shows the door to the hallway. But then, if you combine those two different locations, it doesn't make sense because the hallway actually should go straight through the kitchen. And so, <laughs> all these people trying to figure out, like, but how can we still somehow come up with a, with a, uh, a, a real... Um, uh, geography, you could say, of the set, so that it can it st- still makes sense. And of course, you 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 really can't do that because it's just a television set. It's fake. That door does not lead to another corridor. You just see like a, 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 a it's like the staircase in the Big Bang Theory. If you've ever watched the Big Bang Theory, whenever they go down the stairs or up the stairs, they are shown climbing up like three or four flights of stairs. It's the same set all the time. That staircase does not lead to anything. And they just change a little bit of the, of the set. And then the, the actors just come from, from, from nowhere. They climb up. They go around. They climb up, climb up the stairs. And then they all go down and just do the same thing. They slightly change uh, the set. So it feels like they're going up three flights of, sk- of stairs. But, of course, you cannot do that in front of a live audience. And so always three walls the fourth wall is where the audience is so it that's an invisible wall and of course as an actor you're not supposed to talk to the audience because then you break the illusion for the television viewer but the audience is there and so what what i love about deadpool is that oftentimes he will just look into the camera and he'll say hey wink wink nudge 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 i think this is what's going to happen now and um she-Hulk also does that all the time, where she's turning towards the camera, and she's talking to, to me as a viewer. And she's like, ah, you thought that we, that we would do, like, the cameo of the week. Yeah, no, we're not going to do that. That's lame. You know that. And then she just returns to whatever is happening on stage. And it's funny. It, it's it, um, uh, Another series that did this all the time... Uh, and now, of course, it's a little bit more creepy, is House of Cards, where uh, Kevin Spacey's character would oftentimes just talk directly to the audience. Now, of course, you don't really want him to talk to you directly because, yeah, well, Kevin Spacey. Um, But She-Hulk also does this. But in the finale, something really interesting happens. And that made a, a couple of fans very upset. Now, there is not much needed for fans nowadays to, to get upset and to start complaining on the internet. Um, <laughs> they broke the fourth wall, but they even broke the fifth wall. Now, what could be the fifth wall? The fifth wall is this idea that the, 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 the actors and the audience are still kind of complicit they all play along because they know that this is a fictional story, right? But then, of course, you also have the real storytellers. Um, you've got us. You've got the creators, the writers, the directors. You never see those. If you see them, that totally breaks your... Um, how would you say that? Uh, su- suspension, of, suspension of disbelief. That was what I was going to say. So even in the sitcom, yes, the audience knows that their laughter is being recorded, but it's part of the story. It's part of of getting uh, people to to laugh along because laughing is an infectious thing. So, 
the what what happened in the finale, and I won't spoil it, but they actually break the fifth wall, which is kind of the the barrier between, or at least they pretend that they are breaking the fifth wall. Is that the the barrier between the 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 story, the audience, fourth wall, and then the people behind all that, the cr- the creators, and I won't tell you how they do it, but it's so funny. But it got so much people up in arms like you cannot do this this is not taking the mcu seriously you're breaking all the rules and they didn't realize that that is actually something that comic book series have been doing since the since the dawn of comic book art uh where like if you look at marvel for instance uh there are so many different origin stories look at spider-man how often has that origin story be, been told, even in the movies? And sometimes Aunt May is looking like a, a, an old granny. And then in, in the more recent uh, Spider-Man origin story, Aunt May all of a sudden is a, a, much, more, a much younger a person and she's even flirting with other people and fans were up in arms about that. But, but, but this is what storytelling is all about. A good story can be retold and can be updated. This is the same outrage that you see towards uh, Rings of Power. Oh, that is not possible because Tolkien would have never allowed it. Well, dude, Tolkien has been changing his own stories. The Hobbit started like a children's story. And then he wrote Lord of the Rings and he went back and he totally changed a a number of important things in The Hobbit to make it work more in line with what he wanted to do with, uh, with The Lord of the Rings. And so authors themselves have been changing their stories, reinterpreting them, going back to them. Why wouldn't modern day storytellers be be able to do that. What's the problem of that? That's how stories work. It's a bit similar to the whole debate about uh, about language. You know, you've got these grammar uh, warriors, right? They, 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 they give themselves the authority to judge everyone who is not using grammar appropriately. Language, to some of these, I'm not talking about everyone, but some of these people will get all upset when language starts to change, when when people start to make up words that don't exist, well, here's news to you. This is something that is inherent to any language. The language that you speak right now and that you think is this absolute thing, well, it's a totally... It's made up. It's This is a combination of all sorts of influences. The American English... That I'm, I'm speaking right now in a, a bit of an, an American English accent, but I also add my own Dutchisms in that and my own uh, accent. And, and, and this is how language has evolved throughout the centuries. The, 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 the English that you are listening to right now has been majorly influenced by Nordic languages, by, by, by Latin, by French um and and that w- maybe at the time that was also scandalous like how can you not speak french how can you allow people to not speak latin it's it's this all this purism is basically trying to fix something that cannot be fixed in time or i should say transfixed or um you see this same uh upheaval 
um, that you now see in in the fan in the world of fans that are like, but this can't, this is not canon. This, you cannot do that. You cannot do that with Star Wars. You cannot do that with DC. You cannot do that with Marvel. You see the same attitude in liturgy, in the church, where people sometimes say, but but this is not the tradition of the church. This is we should go all back to the way that the mass has been celebrated for since forever. Well, again, that's not how liturgy works. Liturgy, the liturgy that we celebrate today, is an evolution of all sorts of liturgical practices throughout the centuries. And in fact, the liturgy that was reformed at the Second Vatican Council by the Church itself is is actually much closer to the way that that the older generations in in the beginning of the of the of church history would celebrate mass. A lot of the texts that we use are are directly taken from first second century sources. But then there are some people that think or imagine that the Latin mass according to the Tridentine rite that's what the church should celebrate. This is the only true historic, traditional liturgy. It's not. Even the, the let's say, the traditional Tridentine liturgy uh, that they celebrate is also has been changed throughout the, the centuries. Has constantly been, be, was, was pruned, was modified, things were added, things were taken away. Liturgy, too, is part of, it's, in a certain way, liturgy is also a language it's something that is alive. It doesn't mean that you can do anything. It's something that, that also wants to bring people together. And that is why you cannot just make up your own stuff in liturgy. But at the same time, thinking that this is something that should never change um, and that always has been the same and will be the same forever, that's just not true historically. And then this brings me finally to uh, maybe our next segment, which is our faith segment, because this also applies to Bible reading. We'll talk about that after I play the jingle. (laughs) Catholics rock! Here at the Peculiar Munch, we'll always have to tell you everything you always wanted to know about Catholics and their traditions, but you're afraid to ask. Catholics can be a peculiar bunch. No meat on Friday. No meat? What do they eat? Light bulbs? So in this segment of the show, I always try to answer questions that people have or explain things that Christians, Catholics do, uh, because it helps. Man, you guys got more crazy rules than Blockbuster Video. So um, let's talk about how all this applies, even the upheaval that you now see among certain Marvel fans or purists when it comes to what Marvel should be allowed to do with their franchise or not, as if that is something that fans decide. (laughs) Um, But let's apply this to the Bible. Uh, because and, and this is a discussion that I've very often had with both Catholics, but also by uh, with my Catholic, uh, my Protestant brothers and sisters. It's like, what is the Bible, and how how literally should you take the Bible? Um, and I was a bit stunned because I've I've been brought up as a Catholic, of course, and so 
as a child, we, we went to church every, every weekend as an altar boy. I even went to church for years, almost every day because I was serving mass. So my life has been um, constantly filled on a daily basis by, by Bible readings. And, um, and I, so because the liturg Catholic liturgy has these Bible um, schematics, how would you say that? So um, there are three years um, where we read different parts of the Bible. Um, in, in, even in daily Mass, um, you have two um, uh, years where like they, they alternate. And one year you read this and this and this, and the other, the other year you read that and that and that. So if you, if you go to church every day for years, you will get through a whole bunch of Bible readings. And the, the ideal is that if you, if you follow the liturgical year for a couple of years, you'll have read most of the important books of the Bible. And so um, what always struck me was that um, the Bible is so diverse. It's not one book. We call it the Bible, but it's not the Bible. It's a whole collection of biblical books that are talking about hundreds of years of, of history. Um, and, and so the, the, the style of the, of the writing is very different. The, the background in which these stories were written down, the, the context, the historical context, cultural context, very different from one book to another. Um, the, um, the, the nature of the books that form the Bible is very different from one book to another. You have letters. You've got these eyewitness accounts to a certain extent, the, the gospel writings where they try to write down what, what, what they heard about uh, from, from the eyewitnesses, what Jesus did. Um, you've got historical accounts. You've got war um, re reporting. You know, So we had this war. Let me tell you the story, the history of this and that war. But that was sometimes written down centuries later. You know? You've got poems, the Psalms, for instance. You've got wisdom uh, uh, books where it's just a whole collection of sayings and, and, and beautiful quotes. You've got apocalyptic uh, literature, which is a very specific genre that exists also outside of the Bible. Uh, for instance, the, the, the last book, um, the, uh, the book of Revelations, is, is a very particular literary genre. You've got the origin stories like Genesis, that tries to tell you in an in abbreviated form, so let me tell you the story of how this world came about. And that, that first thing that I said, that's super important. Let me tell you, let me tell you the story of. That is what the Bible is. It's not a, a collection of facts. It is a story that people have, at one point in history, started to write down after it had been handed over from generation to generation orally. And, well, you know how this works, right? When you tell a story, even if it's a story about your own life, someone tells you, well, tell me about that one time that you got COVID. You don't say, well, okay, so it was three minutes past the hour on Thursday the 28th. 
Um, I And then this happened, and then my temperature went up two degrees, and then an hour later it went up like four degrees. That's when we started to get a little bit uh, more nervous, and then we took this and this medication. No, you, you, tell, this, you tell a story. You, you simplify it, you condense things, you focus on what was important to you at the time. Like, I felt so terrible. I was so anxious. I was afraid that I would die. I didn't get, I was unable, unable to breathe. And then you t- that's, how, that's how stories are told, right? And, and oftentimes you will add your interpretation. You, you will sometimes, depending on who you're talking to, you will add a lesson. And that is why from that moment on, I was really careful with not just my own health, but also the health of others. That's why I'm always worried that I'm that not only about my own health, but I'm wearing masks so I don't infect other people. And so should we all do something like that. Um, if I if people ask me about so how did you become a priest, I tell my vocation story. The way in which I tell this vocation story has changed over the years. It's not that I am like just making up stuff, but I'm reinterpreting. I'm reinterpreting my own history, and I tell it uh, depending on, on what I've learned over time. It's also the older you get, the more you start to understand yourself, and you figure out, so, okay, so that is probably the, the major impact, uh, the major influence here. And, so, and this is also how the Bible came about. Um, it's... it's a story that people told one another over time. And so that story contains a lot of interpretations, a lot of, uh, of, of elements that are not necessarily part of the original story, but that were important to the people that were listening. And you know what? A lot of people get upset about that, especially if you talk with more um, Protestants of, of a more fundamentalistic type uh, or um, of denomination. It's like, but... So it's not true. You're just you're, you're telling me that the, these Bible writers were were just making up stuff and they were just adding things that never happened. No, it says that that this person was actually reached the age of a thousand years, or you know. So well, it's in the Bible. It has to be true because if that is not factually true, then may, then all the other stuff can also be basically ignored. Because because but that's a very shallow idea of what what truth is and what and what storytelling is all about and and this often reminds me of these discussions that you have with this, this these people that are like adamant that no there are no dinosaurs in the bible so dinosaurs cannot have existed or the world was created exactly in seven in six days and then on seventh day god rested and the world is the the, the bible gives some numbers so these people that are talking about the Big Bang, of course, they're totally inspired by the devil, but that's just to make us doubt the veracity of the word of God. Like, you know what? You know who came up with that idea of the Big Bang theory? That was actually a priest, <laughs> believe it or not. The church has always, at least the Catholic church, has always been uh, learning from science. They too have made their mistakes and were sometimes very reluctant to go along with what science discovered. But over time, I think the, the Catholic Church has a very healthy uh, respect for for science, and um, but also is very much aware that the way that we tell stories is never completely congruent. That's why it's a story. 
and the 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 church fathers and also the bishops over uh, a long period of time um, have always allowed this what you could say this kind of plasticity or fluidity you could say of uh, the biblical narrative. Um, after all, it's a church that determined this is the Bible. These books are part of the Bible. These books are no, not part of the Bible. So that's that's not an angel who said, "Okay, this is this is it. <laughs> here, here, here is my here's the Bible. This is what God wrote, and just copy this." No, that's just not how it worked. But the church did this, knowing very well that a lot of these stories don't match up. Um, for instance. I don't know if you know this, but the Genesis, the Bible of the, the story of the origin of the world, how God created the world, there are two versions of that. Go back, read, read Genesis. This is the Bible, but there are two stories, and they don't match up. And this also happens with certain wars. We know from historical research that, that sometimes these wars, the story that we find in a Bible, cannot possibly have happened like that. And then sometimes there are like kings or, or, or events that are placed inside a story, but they're from a totally different era. Sometimes a, a story will tell you about a certain success or a victory, and we know from other sources that that is not how it, it happened. And yet it's still the Bible, so it has to be true, right? But how can that be true if it's not literally true? Because it's storytelling. Because stories... Are have a function in in relationship to the, to their time, to their audience, and this is why the church has allowed to have four gospels, not just one. It didn't say, "Oh, well, it's Luke. You have to read Luke." That's that's the that's what really happened, and then John made up some stuff, and Matthew made up some stuff, and Mark made up some no. The church says there are four Gospels, and these four Gospels tell more or less the same story of the life of Jesus and what happened, but they do it in story form. So the emphasis may change. The audience, we know this, is different for these Gospel writers. Matthew wrote for an audience that was very familiar with the Jewish culture. Luke was more, and Mark were more trying to, to talk to people from all sorts of, of backgrounds and also pagan backgrounds, so they, they, they put different emphasis. They sometimes will, some, some uh, gospel writers will take a few events and, and, and tell one story, and, and they will use the elements from these different events, whereas in another gospel, it's like, oh, oh wait a minute. For instance, the, the multiplication of the bread. That happens once, right? That's in the Bible. It happened, no. There are two versions of that story. It happened twice. <laughs> there are so many of these things. And I think that is fascinating. Then you've got John, who's much more of a theologian. He, he, not only does he tell a story, but he also adds his, like, he tries to, to tell the bigger picture of this. That's why it starts with the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, etc. So he almost... Uh, adds like a, a, a Genesis type of, of uh, origin story to, to Jesus. So, so we understand that it's not just this one guy from Nazareth, but there is more to this. This is about God himself who became man, etc. And, and this is what storytelling is all about. And if you don't understand that, then 
then nothing makes sense anymore. And this is why, as a Catholic and as a theologian and as a, as a biblical scholar, I am not at all upset that these canons change over time. That at one point, when Disney bought Lucasfilm, they said, Hey, you know what? Great, all this extra, this, you know, expanded universe stuff. We love it. But yeah, we want to go in a different direction. So from henceforth, this is going to be legend. It's legendary stuff. Good stories. We continue to, to sell them. We hope that you'll read them. But they're no longer part of the canon. A lot of Star Wars fans, me included, were like, oh, but you can't do that. That's called canon. You cannot change that. And then I uh, gave it some thought. It's like, yeah, why not? If they can tell new stories, why not? And then they, they started to take stuff from the old older expanded universe and reintroducing them, like Thrawn. He's a great character from Star Wars, and they, they started to bring him in, back into the, the current canon. And that's also something that um, uh, Marvel does all the time. The MCU that we know is very different from a lot of other Marvel stories and timelines. And yeah, of course, you can explain that away by the multiverse and but but well, I wouldn't even be bothered if if that if the whole multiverse uh, was never introduced because it's a story it's a story and that the story has a certain meaning in a certain time and you tell a story differently like our television the themes that Disney now uh, uh, tell story about um, would, would have would have completely not worked two generations beforehand. Uh, think of a, a story like um, Lightyear, about the real Buzz Lightyear, right? <laughs> that movie, and I've said this in my review earlier on, that is such a, a 2022 story. So it's impossible that that is the, the movie that Andy watched and that got him enthusiastic for the, the toy of Buzz Lightyear. No, that is definitely not... The, <laughs> But, but that's not a problem because it's a story. So a story has to resonate with our times. And that's why I'm not that upset about, uh, about uh, um, the Rings of Power telling stories that, that Tolkien didn't write. And, and, and maybe, yeah, they're, they're changing some of the lore. Well, big deal. It's a story. I love. It's a good story. If it's a good story, yeah. Why, why would you be upset? So anyway, the plasticity of stories is Part of what uh, of our understanding of the Bible has never bothered Christians for for two thousand years, two thousand years. So let's not get too Bible thumpy when it comes to the MCU or the or the or the Star Wars canon or whatever. Learn to be flexible yourself and see these stories. And I'm not saying that these stories are just human stories, right? When it comes to the Bible, there's definitely inspiration. The the, the Holy Spirit. Is, is working, and, and, and this is the word of God. But it's, we're always trying to, to make it so small that we can understand it. And the, the Holy Spirit can work through so many different liter literary genres, even through opposing stories and opposing facts. Why not? It's important to listen first, without judging, without thinking that you are the norm of everything. Let the story do its work. And then in there, somehow, mysteriously, you will find the Holy Spirit. You will find God's truth. Anyway, keep an open mind. It'll make you a lot happier. Let me tell you the story of that one time that I made crispy tofu. <laughs>
<laughs> no, I actually did that. That is a fact. I made crispy tofu the other day in my brand new carbon steel wok. I've been looking for a good wok uh, for, for, for months now. I've got an induction plate. Uh, that I cook with, which uh, is I'm very thankful for, especially now that gas is so expensive. But it's also challenging if you're like me, if you like to cook Chinese food. And I was so used to my old walk. And and so uh, the other day in Hilversum, after I went to the bookstore, I also went to uh, uh, an Asian store. And, and I, I immediately saw that one walk and it was steel and it was big and not too heavy. And um, it was pre-treated or pre-oiled. So I bought it. It was relatively cheap, 27 bucks. And I love it already. It's so different. So I've got a few carbon steel IKEA pans. But, but it's so difficult to do the traditional Asian cooking because it's, it, it, it doesn't work. If I try to hustle the, the, the ingredients, half of it flies across the, the room, across the kitchen. So you need a specific form. Ideally, it will be like completely circular. You can't do that with, uh, with induction, of course, because then there's no contact with the, with the magnets. Um, but now I have like a compromise, which is a flat bottom, and then, but the rest of the pan is really, really tall, curved... Uh, uh, how you call it? The rest of the pan is curved anyway, and so it, it took me a, <laughs> a couple of minutes to 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 uh, get to f- get the feel of the pan. But oh man, what a difference it makes! And so yesterday, finally was able to to make proper crispy uh, tofu. Very simple recipe. You press the 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 moisture out of the tofu. Very important. I cut it into tiny cubes. I froze that in, so it becomes a, a bit more chewy. And it is, becomes very absorbent to um, marinate, for instance. I didn't marinate these. I just added some herbs, some paprika powder, some garlic powder, um, some salt, some pepper, and um, uh, cornstarch. And I just shook it in a... I, I put it in a, in a small container. I shook it all together so that all the sides are, are coated. You heat up the oil really... It has to be really hot... And then and and you have to use a lot of oil, otherwise it will stick to the bottom and will burn, and that's not nice. Uh, and then you fry basically the the tofu cubes, and they become really nice, brown and crispy. I even used some of the herbs that I normally use for chicken, and so it of course it's tofu. It's it doesn't taste like chicken. It will never taste like chicken because it's a different material. But the crispiness and the salt and it ah oh, delicious and then i added the other ingredients so just uh, um, some veggies and um, uh, and and i ate it with um, um, some whole wheat um, ramen noodles which is actually very nice and a slightly healthier than, than regular ramen. Um, so I just added it together and, and just the, the tofu, I mean, I was expecting something that would be really crunchy, like if you eat it, that was not the case. But the, but so it was uh, still, I mean, like crispy to- tofu is overpromising. So it wasn't crispy. There is actually a way, I think, to make it more crispy, but then you'd have to add oil into the marinade and uh, maybe even crushed cornflakes or something like that. So you definitely, you'd, or the breadcrumb stuff. Um, but I didn't want to do that yet because eh, it wasn't in the recipe that I was following. Maybe next time. 
um, it, maybe even use egg. Like you uh, do, like first of all, you do the, you, you uh, cover them with, how, how would be the, the best order? It's probably first egg and then breadcrumbs and then corn flour or cornstarch and then put them in the, in the oil. Probably something like that. And, but then you'd probably have to use a lot of oil and just br- straight out, you know, fry them like you would fry uh, uh, French fries, for instance. But uh, yeah, I don't have that amount of oil. Plus, it, this is a big walk. So you need like a, a two bottles of oil to get to the point where you can actually immerse stuff in there. But, uh, but anyway, I want to share that with you. Crispy tofu, just Google it um, and, and try it out. It definitely changed my overall appreciation of tofu, which has never been a, a, my favorite. But uh, yeah, I'll make this again. We are on the cutting edge of technology. Wow. Well, what does that mean? Let's plug it in. It's going to say, hey, I see you plugged in a new device. And it's going to load in the appropriate drivers. You'll notice that this scanner built... Whoa. Well, all your technology stuff, it just ends in disaster. But there is one more thing. The Meta Quest Pro is here. Um, this was something that I've been looking forward to for a long time. I, I was curious. I wasn't planning on buying uh, the, the, the Quest Pro. I was like, I, I, I want to know what they're going to do. Um, this was, of course, a, a, the big, this is the big project of Meta, formerly known as Facebook. And Mark Zuckerberg himself personally feels that the metaverse, like this new virtual reality, is the future for his business. So he invested millions in it, in the development of that metaverse. But of course, you can develop software, but you need hardware that enables people to have that immersive experience. And we've seen uh, two sets of virtual goggles so far. The the Quest, or it was at the time, was called Oculus because he just straight out bought another company that was called Oculus. Then they re-baptized the brand into Meta and the Quest. So you've got the Quest One. I've got that one. Uh, and if you've got the Quest Two, no, wait, no, there was one before that. There was the Oculus One, I think. I don't know. Anyway, there was this like almost prototype, and then they did the Quest, and then they did the Quest Two. The Quest Two is the current model that is affordable, more or less affordable. Um, I still have the regular Quest, which is fine to me. One of the one of the things that I always thought was a limitation of of any virtual reality technology is the limited field of view. It feels literally as if you're underwater. If I in 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 my youth, I I'd like I'd love to dive underwater, and you would have these goggles, but they would really limit your uh, your your. Uh, your field of view so it felt as if you're looking through tiny binoculars and for me vr often felt like that like i'm i'm looking yeah it's a wonderful world it's all 3d but what breaks the immersion is the this feeling that i'm 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 watching through binoculars i want i want the the world to be all around me now this is one of the things that they improved in the MetaQuest pro it's got a bigger field of view it's not there. It's not entirely surrounding you yet. And they introduced another interesting technology that they're still working on because it's not ready yet. It tracks your eye movement. So it knows where you're watching. And I don't know if you know this, but 
we have actually very, very bad eyes. The only thing that we see very clearly and sharp is like a very tiny part of our field of view. And it's where we're focusing. That is sharp. But if you, if you focus, for instance, on one point in, in front of you and you try to observe your peripheral field of view, you will notice that it's kind of blurry. Well, that's what they're emulating now in, uh, in the Oculus Pro, or the Quest Pro, I should say. They're only rendering full high resolution what you're actually looking at, which I think in the end, ultimately, when hardware and software start to really work together, um, will we'll also save resources because you don't have to render everything in high definition, just what you're looking at. Now, the other thing that this um, eyesight observation can, can help Meta do is to observe your, your facial expressions. And so this is the big distinguishing factor uh, between what distinguishes the, the regular Quest from the Quest Pro is that it can actually... Uh, allow you to express yourself, to smile, to, you know, frown. Um, and I have to say that the demos that they showed were very promising. It, again, it's still very early days. But I think that this is super important for, you know, our communication. We rely so much on these subtle cues. And if you're just playing a Teletubby in, in VR, nobody's going to want to do that. It's not going to replace our social interaction. So... Ultimately, we will get there. But the thing is, the, the technology is so lacking in so many areas that I don't think that this, this MetaQuest Pro is going to revolutionize the, the, the industry yet. And it's expensive, $1,500. Now, let's not forget that Apple is also going to bring us... Uh, I accidentally pressed it. <laughs> the final <laughs> the outro button i need to wrap up but apple is also gonna bring us their ar glasses and well it's probably also gonna be very expensive so it yeah we're not there yet google is also working on uh on improving this technology um maybe next week i'll talk about something that they showed or demoed the other day which is also stunning but we still have a long way to go I want to wrap up with the quote of the, of the week. And this is one is from Arthur Schopenhauer. Reading is thinking with someone else's head instead of one's own. I love that one. And it's so true. Ever since I started reading one book a week, right now I'm reading two books a week, my mind has expanded so much because I'm entering into the thoughts and the knowledge of someone else. And the same thing is happening with stories that I read. It, it places me in, in someone who has a different view of the world. And, and that helps me to expand my own view, to learn, sometimes also to, uh, to know where I stand. I don't always agree with who I'm reading, but it helps me think. So that's why I'm happy with my books. Talk to you next week. Thanks for the privilege of your time. God bless.